Well, good morning. I want to thank Ivan and the team for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, Suai, for reading a scripture for us. I particularly love that last verse of that passage. Uh, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I sometimes wish that I could make that my life verse. <laughs> Maybe partly because I'm an introvert, and so my threshold for human interaction is a little lower than, than some people. But also as a parent, this, this would be a really useful verse to have in your back pocket. I, some of you are laughing. You know what I'm talking about. You have to answer a lot of questions when you have kids. They don't, <clears throat> they don't tell you that before you become a parent. And this, is, this would be good to know. Parenthood is wonderful. I highly recommend it. But just be, brace yourself. You will be barraged with questions. Uh, you'll have to make decisions all the time about whether you want to give permission for this or that. You know, Dad, can we buy a pony? <laughs> no. Dad, can we go hang gliding? No. Or, um, you know, just random questions about the world and things like, Dad, why is the sky blue? I don't know. Dad, why is snow white instead of clear? I don't know. I don't know. Or th this, was, this is a real-life <clears throat> example. This is one of my favorites. Driving along... Dad, where do the roads begin? <laughs> How do you answer that one? And, uh, a lot of these questions will come at you when you're driving. You know, you're just, you're just going along. Dad, Dad, uh, when are we going to get there? I don't know. Well, how, uh, how, how many miles have we been driving? I don't know. Dad, Dad, can I, can I change the radio station? No. Can we listen to that Taylor Swift song again? No. <laughs> Dad, can we stop at McDonald's? Just once, I'd like to be able to turn around and say, that's it. I hereby invoke Matthew 22:46, <laughs> whereby no one is able to answer me a word, nor dare ask me any more questions. <laughs> I think I'm going to give that a try. I somehow don't think I'll have the same gravitas that Jesus did, but it'd be worth a shot anyway. I would point out that Jesus did not actually have any kids. I mean, he was, he was, he was very effective at shutting down the Pharisees, but would those, would those techniques work on his own children? We don't know. I, this is pure speculation on my part, and therefore perhaps not helpful, but I feel like if Jesus had had kids... Maybe there would be another verse there. <laughs> Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions, comma, verse 47, except his two sons, Bradley and Brian, <laughs> who never stopped asking him questions until he almost went crazy. And yet, he loved them with unfailing love and infinite patience. <laughs> I don't know. We'll never know. 
And anyway, the, the Bible says, you know, we're not supposed to add anything to the text. So, you know, strike that from the record and we'll just move on. We're not actually going to be focusing on verse 46 <laughs> this morning as much as I would love to preach an entire message about not asking me any more questions. Um, maybe I'll do that. So it'll be a series next time. But no, we're going to be focusing on um, the middle section. You might have noticed that in the section that was read, there are three sections. Uh, the first section about the resurrection, the section about the great commandment, and then the third one, the whose son is the Christ. Maybe this made you a little nervous that you thought that in order to cover all that, I was going to have to preach three sermons and we'd be here till four o'clock. I can assure you that will not happen. There's one message today, and I'm going to try to tie it all together, and we can get out of here before lunch. And we're going to be focusing on the middle section having to do with the great commandment. This is a fantastic and very important section. This guy comes up to Jesus and asks him a question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he's asking him this question, it says in the previous verse, to test him. Like these guys were always trying to test Jesus and ask him like these trick questions uh, to trip him up so that whatever he said, they could use it against him somehow. And apparently that's what the guy was trying to do here. But I, for one, am sort of glad that he asked Jesus that question. It's really a helpful question. Because, I mean, there are a lot of commandments in the Bible. This is a very dense book. It's filled with things to do and not do and principles and precepts and directives. And it's hard to keep up with all of that. And you can get overwhelmed. And it would be nice to just boil it down to the main thing. You know, kind of like if, if sometimes when people preach, they will say, if you only get one thing out of the message today, let it be this. And that's, a, that's great, because then whatever they say next, you can write that down and just sleep through the rest of the message. But, but um, that's apparently what that guy, you know, was hoping Jesus would do, like if you just boil down the, the, the Bible to one thing. Um, but the thing that Jesus says in response to that doesn't give us permission to sleep through the rest of what God has said or release us from um, the... the rest of the commandments in scripture, it kind of puts all the rest of it into perspective in a really profound way. He says, Jesus says in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And if Jesus Christ says that this is the great and first commandment, the thing that God wants from people most of all, and we would do well to pay close attention to it and to try our best to fulfill it, right? And so to that end, I want to ask two questions about that commandment that will hopefully help us to understand the commandment more uh, fully and hopefully enable us to fulfill it more completely. The answers to the two questions will come from the 
two sections of scripture that surround that, so it'll all kind of tie together, and you'll see that the context of scripture is no accident. Uh, the, the two questions are this, why should we love God, and how should we love God? Why should we love God? That's the first question we're going to ask today. You might even think that's a weird question. Why would there be any question about why you should love God? Because he's God, right? Shouldn't that just be enough of a reason? I mean, he is the almighty, infinite creator of all things. He's the most glorious, powerful, majestic being in the universe. Isn't that enough reason? On top of that, Jesus just said that loving God is the greatest and first commandment. So if you don't love God, you're totally sinning and you'll be in trouble with God and you don't want that. So there's two reasons to love God. That should be enough, right? Not really. Because the kind of Jesus, the kind of love that Jesus talks about in this great commandment is a very personal kind of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, like with everything that's within you, every fiber of your being, deep, genuine, personal love. You can't manufacture that from the outside in. Because he's God is not enough of a reason to produce that kind of love. So what would inspire that kind of all-encompassing love? The answer we find in the previous section. We love God because he has given us living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection. It's no accident that right before Jesus gives the great commandment, just a few verses before that, he's talking about the reality of the resurrection. He's talking to the Sadducees who don't believe that there is a resurrection. They're arguing with him about it. And Jesus makes uh, a theological argument for the reality of the resurrection. And eventually, we know, as we see the gospel story unfold, that Jesus will become living proof of that argument when he himself is resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is the key. If it weren't for the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we would be lost. We would have no hope. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. You are still in your sins. There would be no victory over sin and death, we would be condemned to die with no way out of it. And with that kind of dismal fate hanging over our heads, we would have no personal reason to love the God who had created us into such a hopeless situation. We might believe in God, we might see his glory and power displayed throughout creation, and we might respond to that with some kind of reverence and awe, even fear but not love, because we would have no reason to believe that God had loved us. 
But the resurrection of Christ is a glorious display of God's love for us, that he loves us enough to save us from that dismal fate, that he offers us a way out. The resurrection of Christ serves as tangible, physical proof that God's promise of eternal life is real and that there is hope for eternity, right? And I, for one, and I know uh, some of us in this room can relate to this, I know what it feels like to live without that hope. I didn't always have that hope. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't go to church when I was a kid. Nobody taught me about Jesus and eternal life and the resurrection and any of those things. So I always assumed that when you die, you're just done. It's just game over. And that always bothered me. Ever since I was a kid, I was really deeply troubled by that, and it sort of made life always seem kind of meaningless to me. Especially as I got older and I started to, um, you know, I got into my 20s and I, I started to pursue things, and, and it just, oh, I could never shake the fact that life seemed meaningless somehow. And this became uh, really problematic to me um, as my musical career kind of took off and I had some success with my band. Uh, a lot of you know that I'm in a band called the Smoking Popes, and we, um, that always gets a little chuckle in, in church for some reason when I say that. <laughs> but uh, b back in the 90s, that's what I did full time before I uh, became a Christian. Um, in 1995, we were fortunate enough to sign a contract with Capitol Records, and things kind of took off for us. Our, our songs were in heavy rotation on alternative radio stations um, all around the country, and uh, our, our videos were being shown on MTV, back when MTV showed music videos. <laughs> our, our songs were featured in movie soundtracks, we were touring around the world. We had our pictures in magazines. We were famous. We, were, we had money. We had success. All the things that are supposed to make you happy, the things that we thought would make us happy. But I wasn't happy because I had no hope. I, I had success in life. I had no hope for eternity. And I became depressed and desperate. And I sort of hit bottom eventually. This is a story that, you know, I won't go into in, in detail, but I, I, I sort of downward spiral and I, I hit bottom. It's a family service, so I won't get into it. But it was just like, I had this turning point where I was like, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I need some answers. And I started looking for answers. Wherever I could find them, I started studying different religions. I started reading the Bible, but also reading about... Uh, teachings of Buddha, I was reading books by the Dalai Lama, I was reading uh, all kinds of Eastern philosophy and New Age religious stuff, I was going to meditation groups and, you know, temples where you go and sit with monks and chant and uh, doing all that stuff, just, just grasping for spiritual truth, something to hold on to that was going to be some kind of an anchor some kind of hope. And out of all the things that I was learning about, all the teachers 
and leaders that I was learning about, one stood out to me clearly above all others, not just because his teaching was more appealing to me, but because of something else. Out of all religious leaders and teachers throughout all of human history, Jesus Christ was the only one who had defeated death and who had risen from the dead, which gave authority to everything that Jesus was saying about what happens after we die and uh, the reality of life and death. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changed everything. And when I came face to face with the reality of the resurrection, this, this physical proof that there really is life after death, that there really is hope, that Jesus really did have the authority to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. When I came face to face with that truth and I accepted it and I believed in Jesus Christ and put my faith in him, in that moment I was brought from death to life and that cloud of despair and hopelessness that had been hanging over me my whole life was taken away. Praise God. And Jesus became my living hope. I can't cry and talk at the same time, so I have to take a moment to uh, collect myself. Just the... the the starkness of that contrast in my life is sort of overwhelming when I think about it. Uh. And as I tell my story, I realize that the details of my testimony might be uh, different than some of your stories, but we have this one thing in common. If, if you at any point in your life have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then he has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He has done that for me. He has done that for you. He holds that hope out to all of us. And that's the reason why we can love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. Some of us over the course of our lives have developed concepts of God that may, might make it hard for us to love him. You know, maybe we have always tended to think of God as like this impersonal, distant being or like a force that kind of created everything like clockwork and just backed off and, and we're all just left to fend for ourselves. It's kind of hard to love a God like that. Or maybe you come from a religious background that emphasized uh, the wrath of God and portrayed God as mostly angry, kind of an ogre who is always mad at us and waiting to punish us. And it's kind of hard to love a God like that. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ smashes those concepts of God 
It tells us that God is not a distant, impersonal force. He is present. He is alive. He is accessible. He sees our existential plight, and he provides a remedy for it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that God is not an ogre just waiting to punish us, but that he wants us to have life. And he provided that life for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He invites us to live with him forever in an eternal relationship with him. Why should we love God? Because he has given us living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the answer to that question. That's our, that's our foundation for loving God. And once we have a handle on that, then we move on to the next question, which is how should we love God? How should we demonstrate that love and live it out? The answer we will see in the following section of Scripture is this, we love God by submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That whole next section uh, is an argument about the lordship of Christ. Uh, Verses 41 through 46, Jesus is making an argument from Scripture to establish that the Christ is not merely the son of David, physical descendant of King David, but that he is actually the son of God. It's an argument for the deity of Christ. And the crux of this argument is that King David in Psalm 110 uses the word Lord. He refers to him as Lord. You see it in verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So this word Lord is very important. What does it mean? We're not too familiar with it in our culture. In Amer- we don't have lords in America, except like landlords. <laughs> Not exactly what we're talking about, but it's maybe in the ballpark. You might be familiar with lords if you watch the show Downton Abbey. <laughs> Some of you watch that show. I would never publicly admit to being a fan of that show, but just between us, I may have seen a few episodes. I... Uh, I know that there's a character named Lord Grantham. He's like the head of the household. You know, very dignified. It's a very British thing, Lord. It's this title of nobility, Lord and Lady. Uh, but he has a certain authority because, you know, he owns the estate and the, the, he's the Lord of the manor. There's a certain authority that goes along with that. Uh, the broader definition of the word Lord, if you look it up uh, on the internet like I did, is this, according to merriamwebster.com, one who has power and authority over others, a ruler to whom service and obedience are due. To whom service and obedience are due. So for us to call Jesus Lord and to live into that and submit to his lordship, we acknowledge the power and authority of Jesus over us and that he is a ruler to whom our service and our obedience are due. And, you know, if we're Christians and we've been uh, followers of Christ for a while, we know that this is like central to the Christian life, 
is that we're trying to do what God says. And the main way that we do that is through this book. Right? We're, we're in this book. We're reading it. We're uh, seeing what God has said about how we're supposed to live our lives and the kind of people that we're supposed to be. We're trying to do what he says. As Jesus, uh, you know, back in uh, Luke chapter 6, there's a verse where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? We understand that there's this disconnect. If Jesus is your Lord, you're not doing what he says, it's, it's, it, there's, it's not, then he's not really your Lord, you know? So we have to be people of the book, and that's a good thing. But there's something, as we are striving to obey God's word and live according to it, there's something that it is very important for us to keep in mind, Right? In fact, it's so important. If you only get one thing out of this message today. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The whole, the whole message is good. You listen to the whole thing. But there is one important thing to keep in mind about our obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is this. Keep in mind who Jesus was talking to when he gave this great commandment to love the Lord our God. The guy who came forward and asked him that question, who was that guy? He was a Pharisee, right? And what do we know about the Pharisees? They were legalists. They're like the textbook definition of legalists. There's like synonymous with it. Like if you tell somebody, dude, you're being such a Pharisee about this. Leave me alone. You're like... You're telling them that they're a legalist, right? Which means legalism is they were, they were extremely zealous about following the law. They were like obsessed with the rules and they were extremely strict and harsh about enforcing the law and the rules. They weren't even content just with the rules that were in God's law. They would make up extra rules just to sort of encase it in an extra layer of rules and they would be really harsh and strict about enforcing it. They were jerks about it, totally lacking the mercy and grace that are supposed to characterize God's people. Because the problem was that their zeal for the law and the commandments was not motivated by love for the lawgiver. Back in chapter uh, 15 of Matthew that we covered a few weeks ago, Jesus was having a conversation with the Pharisees then, and at one point he said, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You obey, but you don't love me. So now, chapter 22, one of these same Pharisees comes up to Jesus and asks about the greatest commandment, which is the greatest commandment, and Jesus is like, you guys with the commandments, you're so obsessed you're obsessed with the commandments and the rules. Like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You want to know what's really important to God? He wants you to love him. He wants your heart. If God doesn't have your heart, you can follow the rules perfectly all day long, and it's not going to mean anything. What God wanted from the Pharisees is the same thing God wants from us today. He wants our hearts. And what he offers to us through Jesus Christ 
is a real relationship built on mutual love. God loves us and has given us his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We respond to that by loving him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. He invites us to voluntary, voluntarily enter into this beautiful, eternal, loving relationship with him that involves obedience, yes, but first and foremost, he wants our hearts. Now, earlier, I made some disparaging remarks about parenthood, mostly for comedic effect. But I want to come back to the idea of parenthood in order to illustrate my point. I, I realize not everyone in here is a parent, but I think that you'll all understand the dynamics of this question. Which would you rather have? A child who is perfectly well-behaved, who never gets into any trouble, who always does what they're told, who follows all the rules perfectly, but who does not love you and whose heart is far from you. Or a child who is not necessarily perfectly well-behaved, a child who causes trouble sometimes, a child who is perhaps a little weird and frustrating and annoying and asks too many questions, <laughs> but who loves you. And you have this genuine connection because you have the child's heart. That's what any parent would want. And that's what God wants. He wants our hearts. And we, so we know that. And as we go forward in the Christian life, we need to remind ourselves of this as we try to obey his commands and submit to his authority. And as we try to do better and to be good, which we should do. We need as the foundation for all of that, that that, that is not a transaction where we're earning anything from God. It's not like a transactional relationship like that. It's a familial relationship built on love. So what does it mean to love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Maybe just even the, the very wording of that question seems daunting to you and burdensome. It's not intended to be. On the contrary, it, it's supposed to relieve the burden of trying in our own strength to perfectly follow all the rules the burden of legalism that comes from law without love. And freedom from that starts with this, being firmly rooted in the hope of the resurrection, laying hold by faith of that resurrection power that God makes available to us, like it says in Ephesians 1. The mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead God's incomparably great power for us who believe. 
believing that we also shall be raised with him. We embrace that hope. We celebrate it. We let our minds be fixed on it. We let our hearts be filled with joy because of it. And we let our soul be stirred to worship and praise to the one who has given us that hope, thereby loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. That's the foundation of our love for God. And from that naturally flows loving obedience to and submission to the lordship of our merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Maybe you're here today and you are a Christian and you have been for a long time. Maybe you can remember a time when you loved God and your relationship with him was uh, very personal and, and loving. But that was a while ago. And maybe somewhere along the way, being a Christian kind of turned into like a collection of habits and routines and traditions and, and rules. And the love part of it sort of faded into the past. I want to tell you this morning that God is still here and he wants to change that before you walk out of this room this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you've never experienced that loving relationship with God. I would say the same thing to you. God is here and he wants to change that before you walk out of the room this morning. And it's simple to do. All you have to do is start by believing in this hope that he is holding out to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe that that is real and that it's for you. God wants you to have it. Take it. Rejoice in it. Thank him for it. Love him for it. Offer God your heart. And you can know the joy of walking in a relationship with God and loving him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind.